they're doing everything sort of in lockstep. And, you know, the largest anti-vaccination group is also very much a QAnon group. And so they've really managed to boost their numbers. And so has QAnon. They've both been able to feed on that, that distrust, which, and that's the distrust in institutions is the thing that binds all conspiracies. And so, you know, that's what they have to keep going, this, this fear and just supplying this fear in inordinate amounts, whether it's the fear of your child being injured or killed with a vaccine or, you know, your child being swept up in um, this sex trafficking ring. It, it really is all so similar. I'm Quinja Jurisic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 6, 2020. This week, on our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Ben Collins and Brandy Zadrozny, reporters at NBC News. Writing at NBCNews.com, they report on disinformation and misinformation in health and politics. Their work covers a lot of ground, but we asked them on the show to discuss one increasingly prominent issue on that beat. QAnon, the conspiracy theory built around anonymous posts on an internet forum claiming that Donald Trump is waging war against a deep state and a vast network of child sex traffickers. It might sound silly, but the conspiracy theory has inspired active violence, and it's becoming increasingly mainstream, with several candidates for U.S. Congress being QAnon believers. Brandy and Ben walked us through how QAnon started, why we need to take it seriously, and how the internet and big technology platforms have allowed the theory to spread. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 6th. Ben Collins and Brandy Zadrozny explain QAnon. So, Brandy and Ben, thank you so much for joining us. We wanted to start off by talking about uh, one of some of your tweets, which I think is sounds more ominous than I mean it to be. Um, but Brandy, you recently tweeted that you're so tired of writing the same story over and over again. Um, so we wondered whether we could start off by just asking you, like, what is that story? What is a generic version of that story that you're telling look like? This is a bunch of charlatan doctors, ophthalmologists, and they, you know, stood on the steps of the Supreme Court and said that hydroxychloroquine uh, would save you. It was a cure. You don't need a mask. I'm just a bunch of medical misinformation. And it blew up on Twitter, or on Twitter, and and but mostly Facebook. And then um, we had to scurry around and debunk it, and we had to call. Facebook and say, when are you going to take it down? Or are you going to take it down? Does it violate your policy? And so, and we just had one of those the last month with two urgent care doctors in Bakersfield who also held a mock press conference and made some dubious claims that spread on Facebook. And then before that, we had the pandemic video where a discredited researcher um, spread a bunch of false information about masks and that, you know, the beach could cure coronavirus. Um, and so it's just, it really is, it's, it's the same thing. And, and it's just, you know, uh, a grifter goes online and publishes a video that's sort of fancy and looks nice. Or someone wears a white lab coat and says something that is, you know, insane and can hurt people. And then we run around on social media trying to find out how far it spread, who saw it and what harm that might do in the world and then talk to social media companies and see if they're going to enforce the policies that they tell us over and over and over that they're going to. Um, so that's the story that I've written, I don't know, dozens of times, uh, and I'm really tired of it. And where does your reporting process start on a story like that? Like, are you continually monitoring lots of these kinds of videos and then just waiting to see whether one breaks through and becomes the, the, the video that we need to debunk and write about today? Or is it that you, you sort of see it once it has gone viral and once it's sort of, I guess, too late? So we report on extremism a lot. And so part of my process for reporting on extremism is to join a lot of extremist groups. A lot of my effort is in medical misinformation and health misinformation. Uh, I had pivoted on that before the coronavirus, and now it's just exploded. But I'm in a lot of anti-vaccination groups. So a lot of my early day reporting is just spending time on those groups and seeing what people are saying, what information people are sharing, how they're communicating, and where those things are spreading. 
every once in a while, a video will, you know, reach the level, the tipping point where, okay, we have to address this because, you know, moms are calling their kids asking what this thing is. Um, My mom is calling me saying, have you seen this pandemic video? And we know we need to move on it. Um, Or the president will um, decide to talk about it, you know, from the Rose Garden and we have to move on it. Um, but yeah, most of my process really is just embedding myself inside these groups and and seeing what harms can cause large and small and then reporting that out. So Ben, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on this too. I know you've described yourself in the past as working on the dystopia beat. Um, do you feel like there's a, a similar dynamic there? Uh, yeah, we have the same sort of process. Uh, you know, in fact, I don't think Brandy and I anticipated when we sort of split up our beats just by happenstance. Brandy was following a lot of stuff involving medical disinformation in parenting communities and like pregnancy groups, people who are saying, you know, don't be induced into labor, like wait months after the fact. And on, you know, these were Facebook groups saying this, and then, you know, they would have terrible stories of children dying on these Facebook groups. And then these people would just be disappeared from these Facebook groups. So she was really focused on on medical disinformation targeting vulnerable people, specifically new mothers or pregnant women. And then as coronavirus shifted up, our beats sort of realigned. They just sort of came back together naturally. And I was, you know, my beat is more on the, I focus more on you know, teens that are radicalized, people who are radicalized on, you know, YouTube and Reddit, 4chan. And what we've, I think, started to realize recently is that it's all one big soup. It's all coming together. And this is a political movement more than anything else. Uh, this is a movement based on magic and anti-science and you know, believing in the premise of uh, an order that uh, is keeping everyone down, whether that's the Illuminati or the New World Order or you know, the Clintons or something like that, or if it's big pharma, you know, with all of these things that have a grain of truth, right, where you know, there are massive amounts of corruption in some of these industries, they are taking all of these like little snippets and creating basically a religion around it and creating a policy around it effectively. And, you know, the dismissal of science and the dismissal of facts is becoming one big thing that we all now cover. And they're all becoming one big group. Her anti-vax groups in my QAnon groups from before all this stuff are kind of uh, converging into one, one big idea to them. So anytime something crazy happens, if the president says, you know, you should ingest bleach or something like that, these are not new ideas to us, unfortunately. Uh, People come scrambling to us when somebody says something crazy in public, assuming that somebody has said it before. Uh, And unfortunately, that is, uh, that's true. It usually, it, it usually was said before on Facebook or Reddit or something. Okay, great. So that's a perfect transition to something we wanted to go deep with you on today, um, sure. which is the sort of the movement and the, the the thing that has become emblematic of the the culmination of all of this, the soup, I guess, um, is QAnon uh, and the conspiracy theory that unfortunately seems to have been uh, gathering a lot of steam, particularly recently. Um, and Twitter announced uh, in the last couple of weeks that it was taking action against uh, accounts linked to QAnon. And the Washington Post ran a story about how the Trump campaign seems to be courting QAnon followers. So let's start at the very beginning. For the blessedly uninitiated, what is QAnon? So QAnon is based on this idea that there is a high-level government insider who is leaking intelligence on 8kun. Now, 8kun used to be 8chan, which before that used to be, uh, he used to post on 4chan. 8chan was banned because too many people were posting mass shooter manifestos on it. Anyways, he, so he posts these things on on uh, 8kun, which are known as Q-drops. And on there, he he posts basically unfalsifiable uh, puzzles, like little cues that show that in the future, something will happen. Something big will happen involving traditional enemies of the Republican Party. Hillary Clinton, John Podesta, Barack Obama, people like that. And it started off incredibly specific. It started off in October 2017. And he said that the next day, on October 30th, that Hillary Clinton would be rounded up and that the National Guard would be activated because so many people would be rioting in the streets because Hillary Clinton was about to be arrested and that her passport was, uh, I believe, seized or, or something like that, and, uh, and she wouldn't be allowed to leave the country. None of that happened, obviously. Um, and you would think that that would stop it. That was the very first Q post ever. But uh, we are here now 
uh, three years later, and it is larger than ever, um, in part because people try to find uh, some answers in these incredibly vague posts. And through that, they have built this community that believes that sometime soon, there will be mass arrests of every prominent Democrat for what they believe to be crimes of eating children, literally satanic cannibals, and they will be rounded up and marched down the street to their execution. Is, uh, is this incredibly violent mythology? Yes. Is it really dangerous? Yeah. Is that why it spurred some real life danger? Of course. But it's hard to deal with because you know, the, the president and the people around him sort of uh, needle these people instead of blatantly shutting it down. Anyways, Brandy can add to this. The mythology around it has vastly expanded since then. It's become sort of a religion or a cult since then. There's mythology quite literally in the sense that there is a church of Q that teaches QAnon things basically like scripture. But uh, Brandy can go deeper into it too. I think I, I hopefully got the start of it right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think when you hear Ben give that explanation, which I have one million times, um, it, <laughs> I mean, it sounds so crazy and so stupid. And I think for a long time, there was a tendency or a wish um, from you know the general media to sort of ignore it until we started getting, you know, babies and Q onesies being held up at rallies and until we started to actually see these people in real life. Now the, you know, the, the president's press secretary ended up interviewing um, a Q person the other day. We just see them all the time. And like Ben alluded to, you know, we're seeing them um, more and more being involved with some violent uh, real world actions, you know, an armed standoff at the Hoover Dam, a couple of murders, some kidnapping plots. And then, you know, the the softer side of it is just general and constant um, harassment of celebrities, of politicians, of literally anybody who says that they like pizza on the internet. So it's it's pretty vile, but you can't ignore it because what QAnon people and what the movement has done so well is sort of the same thing that the anti-vaccination movement did so well. And it's that um, they spread out their ideology and sort of tentacles into groups that were uh, maybe sympathetic with the core tenet of their message. Like, so anti-vax, maybe that's medical freedom. But with QAnon, it's, you know, at the heart of it is a pro-Trump fan fiction where Trump is Messiah. So they've been able to do um, some interesting things in terms of pulling in people into the Q universe that might not understand necessarily Q drops or not, they are not going to Aitkun, right? But they are sharing sort of MAGA memes. They do like General Flynn. They will say the oath of office and, you know, not necessarily understand that they are now part of the machine that's coordinating this sort of Q message to spread further, further, further into MAGA groups. Now we have something like 60 congressional candidates, 16 are going to be on the ballot. Like this is not fringe anymore. This is mainstream. And that's what's really concerning to me. So there's there's so much there, um, and we want to dig into as much of it as we can. But before we do, um, you mentioned Michael Flynn, uh, who I think is a familiar figure to many of our podcast listeners. And I wonder if you would be up to sort of digging in a little to the Flynn to Flynn's involvement with QAnon, because I think that that's potentially a really good example of how the sort of more mainstream pro-Trump figures and QAnon have come to overlap in this weird way. Uh, so for, for listeners who aren't familiar, um, either one of you, Brandy and Ben, could you just like tell us how what is Flynn's connection to QAnon and sort of how has that progressed over time? Because I think it's a really interesting story. So if you see three stars on Twitter next to someone's name, that usually means they're a QAnon follower. And that's the genesis of that is from Michael Flynn. He was a three-star general. And it, they, everyone tried to use that as a symbol for support from Michael Flynn. Now, there is like a QAnon light sort of thing that you guys talk about all the time, but in the right-wing media is referred to as Spygate. This, especially with this organization called the Epoch Times, they pushed this narrative that the Obama administration 
was almost singularly focused on spying on the Trump campaign and trying to effectively put Michael Flynn in jail as a way, as a means of retribution, basically, for the president winning the election. All of that is not true. Obviously, that is not the case. It is incredibly complicated, but doesn't have to do with that. QAnon is like a is a galaxy brain version of that where it wasn't just spying. They were trying to cover up all of these crimes about cannibalism and all this stuff. And Michael Flynn and Donald Trump are trying to out this stuff together as a way to get back at the intelligence community. Now, these things dovetail because the characters are the same, basically. You know, uh, Hillary Clinton is involved in this. Uh, Barack Obama is involved in this. You know, Valerie Jarrett and all these people that are enormously popular in the 4chan and Fox News cinematic universe, but really kind of is nowhere near the traditional American imagination. They share the same characters, but the crimes are wildly different. So when Michael Flynn uh, signals to these people that he wants their support and needs their support and takes the QAnon oath of office, whatever that is, he is doing this to try to, you know, it's fan service, basically. He's trying to drum up any kind of support he can get without saying outright that QAnon is real. He's a really important figure in their in their world because there are QAnon people who just believe in the Spygate stuff and follow along with Q as a as a you know, way to expand that support. This becomes incredibly politically complicated and trying to separate these two things is basically impossible at this point, but that was the point all along. It was to try to create as wide a net as possible so people can believe in, you know, just standard government malfeasance or they can believe in the cannibal stuff. Anywhere in between is acceptable to a Michael Flynn fanboy. Okay, so what's the threat of this? theory like why should we be more worried about it than say people that believe the moon landing was faked or that there are aliens at area 51 brandy you mentioned earlier that there have been some links to violent incidents Uh, how widespread is that and how much is that intrinsic to the QAnon sort of belief system well so the movement is inherently violent right it's 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 an offshoot really of or one of the earlier versions of it was pizzagate which you know is an incredibly wild, baseless conspiracy that a pizza place in DC without a basement was running um, a child sex operation out of that basement. It caused someone to go in and investigate and shoot up the place. So I, I'm in these Facebook groups. So we, so I can tell you that. It is in it's it's really really violent. It's upsettingly violent um, in a way that's that's so upsetting and so extreme that I wonder constantly why Facebook still allows these groups to carry on. And these are groups with hundreds of thousands of members. So we've seen, you know, I I, th- I don't think every person who believes in QAnon, a lot of whom are evangelical Christians, actually, there's a huge Christian component. I don't think that you know these people are going to go out and you know, commit murders or something. But I think that for a a segment of the population who may be mentally unsound or um, may have these tendencies anyway, I think having a a cult like this, an online cult that rewards some of the most conspiratorial thinking and some of the most violent tendencies can really goad someone to, to doing something in real life under the banner of, you know, I'm saving the world, QAnon sent me um, that sort of thinking. You know, the FBI last year, one of their field offices called it a potential domestic terror threat. And and I think that's right. I think that the, that the chance for violence is very real. And we know that because of the many incidences of violence that have been carried out under the banner of QAnon. I, I just want to add to, I'm like uniquely focused on this stuff for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm from Salem, Massachusetts. I grew up uh, reading every single (laughs) uh, witch-based story in in America. The parallels here are super stark. You start to see how people got to believe in basically uh, the idea that a single group of people were responsible for the fact that there weren't enough crops or, you know, you know, the economy's collapsing or something like that. We're seeing that right now where there is an enormous age of uncertainty ahead of us. And the second you start blaming it on 
a group of people based on symbols and mystic ideas, it can get incredibly dangerous. And also, um, the other way I got on this beat, my, my friend, I, I went to college with this guy named Chris Hurst, and uh, he's now a delegate in Virginia. Um, before he was, he was an anchor in Roanoke, Virginia, and his girlfriend was shot and killed on live TV. It's happened a few few years ago, I don't know if you remember this, it's 2015. And um, afterwards, uh, for the next few weeks, when you went to Google him or look him up on Facebook or something, you would just see results showing that he was a crisis actor, that he didn't really exist, that his you know, girlfriend, Allison Parker, didn't really exist or was moved to an island by the CIA or something like that. And I saw how bad it can get for those people. And once you start expanding the net of that from, you know, one person who's involved in a tragedy to just random people who these people choose to target on a day-to-day basis, it can get extremely scary. And that, that's what I've started to see recently is that um, they're targeting private citizens. It's, this is a cult of targeted harassment, basically. And once you start to go down this witchcraft concept and that we start, you know, blaming random people throughout the country for the ills that we're all facing. I can't stress how dangerous that is. There's so much historical precedent for this. And if we don't take it seriously now, it's going to get really dark. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's a horrible story and I think really derives home the fact that, you know, it's easy to think of this as kind of just online, but it's it's very much not. So, Let's move to talking about the role of the internet in this, because I think there's an interesting comparison to be drawn to Salem, as you say, right? That, you know, conspiracy theories are really old. We have example after example, as you've pointed out, of instances in the past where, uh, you know, a theory sort of gets out of control and ends up, people end up getting hurt. So now that we have QAnon, on one level, it seems like a uniquely internet phenomenon. It's so bound up with the culture of 8chan or 8kun. It spreads in this particular way through Twitter. Um, but on the other hand, you know, conspiracy theories are as old as humanity. Like, to what extent is this an internet phenomenon? And to what extent is it a sort of replay of stuff that we've seen in the past? I, I think, I mean, that's right. There have always been conspiracy theories. but. I think of it, um, I think of the town square model a lot because that's how Zuckerberg always talks about it. But, you know, in the actual town square uh, where one once lived there, you know, you might have a couple of people with some wild ideas standing on a soapbox telling the rest of the neighborhood those wild ideas. But now we've created these very user-friendly online hubs to connect the wildest people in each community who at one point might have been taken care of by, you know, the local church or family or friends or, and, and really um, had those ideas battled with, you know, real communities, or they would have just been shouting on the soapbox to no one. And now we've created these places where they can all come together, become, get validated in those ideas, spread those ideas quickly to other people. And like the communities are just so, so good at, at using social media, the way that social media made themselves. So, you know, the shocking content, sort of gussied videos, large communities that, you know, talk and communicate really well with their sister communities and spreading information really quickly. So, you know, when everybody says, you know, bots and QAnon, like it's it's people who are really using the internet as intended to spread sort of the worst possible content. And, you know, we had satanic panic in the 80s, which is a, a close sister to what's going on with Pizzagate and QAnon. But, you know, I, I have just some really dedicated Facebook groups of hundreds of thousands of members that are logging on every single day and just feeding their brains with new, 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 new content, new false content. And I, it just seems like that is a recipe for this particular moment. Yeah. I've seen the same thing. You know, Brandy and I are now, we're like the clearinghouse for people who, whose dad or sister or uncle all went from, during the pandemic, went from being relatively, you know, 
normal, well-adjusted people who weren't even necessarily Republicans, who um, weren't even necessarily political, and they went down YouTube rabbit holes or Facebook group rabbit holes, which are very underrated and underreported, where you know they started off in a in a pro-gun group or something that was completely apolitical, like a bodybuilding group. And then they end up in a Boogaloo group or a QAnon group within a day. And they are all the way down the rabbit hole because they're being told that, you know, just like you saw back 10 years ago on the internet with like weight loss stuff, like the one weird trick stuff, they're being told that there is an answer to all their problems. Um, They've just been laid off or, you know, they've just, uh, they've just lost a loved one to COVID. And they're being told that instead of this being a senseless thing, that doesn't have to happen, that all of this is part of a plan and that you can rally against that plan. It's part of their identity. Um, and those Facebook groups are targeted directly to that. You know, the algorithm is targeted to get directly at those emotions, whether that's YouTube's recommendations algorithm or Facebook's group recommendations algorithm. They are trying to radicalize you. And that's totally fine if they are trying to radicalize you into buying shoes. Like I am a huge I have like 30 pairs of Adidas Ultra Boost. It's disgusting. It's a terrible habit. Um, I'm not sure I would have been that way without without Instagram and Facebook ads. That's fine. That's okay. That's called a hobby. But for these people, you know, that identity stuff isn't shoes. It's uh, death to the deep state. And that's where it starts to get really dangerous. And there's no check on that whatsoever right now. Okay, so that's the story of how platforms have enabled this so far. Um, There sort of seems to be a sense that maybe they're waking up to the threat and the problem. You reported on Twitter's marquee action against QAnon. Can you walk our listeners through precisely what the platform did and whether you think that's indicative of a broader industry trend in this direction or whether it's just sort of going to be an outlier? So first of all, what they did, what Twitter did, they, uh, they banned 7,000 QAnon accounts straight up that were participating in coordinated uh, harassment behavior. So they were targeting specific people, telling everyone to go release a torrent of hate on these people's accounts, to look into their past or whatever, to go through their Instagrams and talk about and find anytime they talked about pizza or children in any capacity, and then blow that up uh, in a satanic panic kind of mode. 7,000 of those accounts are gone. Some of those were verified accounts. Now, 150,000 more accounts were limited, which means on Twitter, their replies don't show up as easily. It's harder to search for their names. It's harder to search for their tweets. They don't show up in trending topics, basic things like that. So those people can still tweet, but it's sort of into a vacuum and it matters less. In a lot of those cases, those are you know bot-like accounts or accounts that are one of several accounts from a specific user. So that is a pretty enormous step from Twitter. And it has taken, I would say it's, it's done a really good job in the last couple of weeks. Now they, they have changed their tactics. They don't uh, say that they're QAnon followers anymore. They just say the word, they just say the number 17 instead. Uh, Twitter said they would adapt to that sort of thing. And that's, that's fine. You know, that that's going to happen. Bad guys find ways around this. They are very good at manipulating the rules. In terms of industry trends, so Facebook said they were going to do something about this immediately after that. Uh, they did not. I don't think they will because they have consistently said they were going to take actions like this while it was sort of trendy and while positive press was given to uh, organizations that take steps against this. Uh, but then they never actually do it or they never enforce it. A big thing with Facebook is they say they'll do something. They take a quick action. They never enforce it again. And then it's just as much of a hellhole as it was weeks beforehand. They are they have a hard time keeping to their promises is a delicate way of putting that. Um, and I have been covering them for a half decade. I don't think any company does uh, as poor of a job at uh, enforcing their own rules as Facebook does. Brandy, do you agree with that? Is that a good summation of what's going on there? It, it is with Twitter. And I think I think it's very clear from us on the back end working with Twitter sources when we have to ask about certain things that we're seeing that Twitter is taking a very aggressive approach now with with QAnon accounts. And we have seen just from you can view metrics, I think that it's it's drastically changed the QAnon chatter and reduced the QAnon chatter. They, you know, they don't let you link out to QAnon websites anymore. It's very helpful um, and really does cut their communication just off at the knees. But Facebook, I have kind of a hot take on 
because um, again, I'm in a lot of these groups and I'm, I just sit in them constantly. And, and a lot of the anti-vax groups, this is true as well, that like Ben said that they'd say a lot of things and then they don't do them. And that is true. So last year in April, um, they said that they were going to make moves to combat anti-vaccination misinformation, which is laughable. Um, so the largest anti-vaccination group is now a QAnon group as well, because the founder is a QAnon devotee. So um, what I've noticed just from being in the group a lot is that they um, have been aggressively monitoring and dinging and sometimes pausing the person's ability to post. They've just been really been doing a lot of aggressive enforcement actions in both the QAnon groups I'm in and the anti-vaccination groups I'm in. I also noticed they were doing this with the Boogaloo groups right before they actually um, decided decisively that they would not be, certain Boogaloo groups would not be allowed on the platform and did a really big purge. So I'm actually pretty hopeful and I, I, I feel like they're about to do something fairly large on QAnon. So we'll see. I'm often wrong, but I I feel that I've I feel that they're going to do something this time. Brandy, are you saying it's the calm before the storm? Trust the plan, Ben. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Careful, you two. Um, <laughs> battle lines are drawn, though. I oh, guess no. someone's going to have to buy someone a drink um, if we ever make ourselves make it out of quarantine. Uh, now that you've both placed your chips on the table on that one. Why do you think it's taken so long? Then I mean, sort of given the narrative that you have laid out today about sort of how, how dangerous this is, how much platforms have enabled it. What do you think it has been that has caused reticence from uh, Facebook in particular? And, and specifically, is it concern about what rule it is that these groups are breaking or is it just like the rules are there, but they're just not enforcing them enough? Well, with Facebook, you know, Mark Zuckerberg says he doesn't want to be the arbiter of truth. And I've talked with, you know, I have sources on the policy side and on the enforcement side and, and, you know, management side. And I think what I'm, the, the basic idea that I've gotten is that it's, once you decide on something, once you open that can of worms that, okay, we're not going to allow certain content, you have, you've created a new sort of job for yourself. And, and when it comes to stuff like anti-vaccination, a lot of that is, you know, mom's sharing stories. And so are you going to police that content? Like how, how does that work? And are you going to allow mothers to say, my child might've been injured from a vaccine, even though that child probably wasn't injured from a vaccine? Like, are we policing that speech? It really does get hard. I, I have, Facebook and I have no love lost for each other, but I do, I don't want to diminish the the scale of the job that they have if they truly do take battling misinformation, especially health misinformation and this conspiracy stuff, if if they really do think that that's a valuable use of their energy, I don't know how they can do that well with what they're currently working with. And I don't know if they're doing it well because they grade their own homework, as Claire Wardell likes to say from first draft. So yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think it's just really hard. Yeah, I agree. I think it's I think it's an extraordinarily hard thing to do. But I guess like my sympathy goes out the window once I see how well they do with non-white terror groups. ISIS has never had a foothold in Facebook. <laughs> it's just never happened. Uh, same thing goes for Twitter or YouTube. You know, they have hashes for videos that they know are going around, and they can kill it instantly. That is not done with, you know, mask-based propaganda with equally uh, extremely harmful stuff uh equally harmful stuff about QAnon. you know they they can find way but a hash by the way is like a, an identifier signifier for a video that or an image that allows you to basically distill a video or an image down to code and then anytime that code is uploaded in any capacity whether it's you know, it can be even altered slightly it will catch it and it won't even allow you to post it onto the service so i know it's possible but I understand it's it's very difficult. It takes a lot of work. But uh, at the end of the day, this is political wrangling. They view QAnon as a political group. And once you start to allow QAnon to be, and I, I guess allowable as a group of talking points in the Republican Party, the other side is literally child-eating Satanists. 
that shifts the Overton window to a place that no one should be comfortable with, period. That's, that's how you get incredibly violent, literally demonizing thought about people who are your actual neighbor. And, you know, Facebook is, says over and over again, it's about building community. I have no idea what kind of community you can build by saying that the guy who lives next door because he has a Joe Biden sign on his, on his lawn is pro child eating. So, you know, at the end of the day, they're, they're, they're very good at drawing lines, even though they don't say they are at Facebook. Uh, and this is a line they've decided not to draw. Yeah, just to be clear, I think uh, Facebook's record shows that they are completely feckless as a company when it comes to any of this stuff. Ben, you were talking about QAnon, sort of thinking of it as a part of American politics and why that makes it difficult for Facebook to sort of want to step in. So let's let's talk about that. There are, um, as we've said, a number of congressional candidates who have expressed support for QAnon. Uh, I think some of them may even be well positioned to win their seats because, say, they won a Republican primary in a very Republican district. I'm curious for your thoughts. How sort of real should we interpret that QAnon support as? Is it is it an actual part of their beliefs or the platform? Or to, to what extent is it just kind of, you know, signaling, as we talked about with Michael Flynn, like that you're on the president's right. team, that you're really a dyed-in-the-wool Republican? Like, are we going to have a QAnon caucus in Congress? Or is it just going to be, you know, some more people sign on to the Freedom Caucus? I just got physical chills hearing that that phrase from you. So thank you for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, it's all right. It's all good. Look, there is, you're right. There is a large contingent of this where, you know, the letter Q just means Trump support. And you see that at rallies too, where, you know, there are people going down the line saying, like, you know, you know, yell if you love Q or something. And most people will yell it because they have a vague perception of what it is. And they know it just means that, you know, Donald Trump is our savior and great. That is absolutely part of it. Hopefully that's how it remains. Like if this morphs into just generalized Trumpism, then it isn't that dangerous. And that's great. Like we can, we can move from there. But right now it, it is not that. It, it means something much darker than that. Um, and, you know, I, I talk to people who are Q supporters all the time. And the door is always open to the idea that this, the civil war is coming, like there or things like that. Even the most normal ones that you talk to on a day-to-day basis who are interested in Spygate and Mike Flynn and things like that. At the end of the day, they really expect the judgment day to come. They, they anticipate, you know, mass arrests, whether that's for the cannibalism or for treason or something. They, they anticipate it's coming. So, I mean, maybe I'm way off. Like, it's totally possible that everybody who's watching this stuff and watching all these people talk an incredibly dangerous game all the time are, you know, maybe they're just cosplaying. But that's what they said about the Boogaloo people. And that's what we were warning against then too, that these people were just, you know, also obsessed with the judgment day that they thought were going to come. And uh, that's what they said about the white nationalists on 8chan, who were also obsessed with the idea that there would be an incel rebellion. You know, over the last few years, we've seen how radicalization takes itself into real life in incredibly dangerous ways. This would be the first of its kind to remain that way, where you know, we get out of this with only a few times these people get into shootouts or kill people once or something. It, it would be it would it, it would be an incredible gift to the anti-radicalization crowd if this just remains on the internet. I just don't think it will happen. Yeah, I I have some thoughts about this. I I think that there's a there's a spectrum. I like like Ben was saying about QAnon belief. So you have like the woman who's likely to win Lauren Boebert in Colorado, she seems like a more of a toe dipper than a real, you know, Q fanatic, but Joey Perkins has a, a real allegiance to QAnon. She gave the oath and um, she probably doesn't have a chance, but she still managed to get like 175,000 votes in her primary. So I, I think, I think what, the possibility is, isn't that there's going to be, you know, a QAnon caucus, but a couple of things. One is that they're going to have a platform. Anybody who does get into Congress will have a platform. And on that platform, they'll be able to spread these ideas to a wider audience. 
And then secondly, I think it'll be a real shot in the arm for the people watching from their computer screens and the digital soldiers who are engaging with this conspiracy. And and it doesn't seem like any good would come of it. Yeah, I mean, this is how we talked about birthers. And currently, you know, the president is a birther. It was a wild internet conspiracy theory that one guy held on to, and it sucked in a lot of different uh, dynamics about identity and about democratic politics. And you could sort of hint and nod and joke about it and say, yeah, I'm not sure if he was born in the country or whatever. Yeah, I'm, like you could just say that right now. Yeah, I'm not sure about QAnon. Man, he seems to have a lot of good uh, intelligence or something. You could go down that path uh, with the plausible deniability. And that's how it gets dangerous. Like there is no birther caucus at all in Congress, but the president of the United States, you know, was the was the birther in chief. So these are dangerous ideas that don't need an like an official party platform. So if that's the political side of the story, um, Brandy, you were talking earlier about how it's also just coinciding with health misinformation and anti-vax views more generally. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on how similar or different this kind of story is to your history of reporting on health misinformation. I know that platforms try to draw a clean line between the two very often that, you know, health misinformation in particular in the context of the pandemic, that's something that they're happy to crack down on really hard. um, And we can sort of quibble about, or not quibble, but be angry about how effective or not they are at doing that. But, you know, that political disinformation and misinformation is more difficult to to tackle. How do you see the similarities or differences, or are you just sort of seeing it all combine in one big conflagration? Yeah, no, they're, I mean, almost exactly the same in terms of ideology and tactics. Um, what's changed is the players, right? So, you know, take out take out John Podesta and Hillary Clinton and Obama, and you can put in Dr. Fauci and uh, Bill Gates and whoever your local county health policymaker is. And they are the bad guys. And you go after those bad guys relentlessly. And you create these entire fantasies um, surrounding, you know, if we're talking about anti-vaccination groups around Bill Gates and big pharma and, you know, all of these, again, also all of these children are dead. And there's a very pure reasoning behind this. We are out to save children, both groups say constantly, but what they're doing is, you know, leveraging social media to, to create these harassment campaigns against anyone who is against them. And, and, Again, with tactics, they've just, they're both so, so good at cross pollinating different groups who may also have a distrust of institutions. So, anti vaccination movement people um, went after Black Americans, well, around last year. And then that's really fed into the Black Lives Matter movement because they have leveraged African Americans' distrust of warranted distrust of the U.S. government when it comes to medical studies and science. And they've leveraged that into thinking into a campaign that tried to get African-Americans not to get vaccinated in Somali communities and in Black communities in Harlem. So I just think that they're stark, they're very, very similar. And, and the dangers that they can do seem to be compounded because now they really have joined forces. And I have been saying it's like the boss level because before, you know, we could do, one of us would take political extremism, one of us could take uh, medical or health extremism and misinformation, and then we'd have our beats. But now they've just, they're doing everything sort of in lockstep. And, you know, the largest anti-vaccination group is also very much a QAnon group. And so they've really managed to boost their numbers. And so has QAnon. They've both been able to feed on that that distrust, which and that's the distrust in institutions is the thing that binds all conspiracies. And so, you know, that's what they have to keep going, this this fear and just supplying this fear in inordinate amounts, whether it's the fear of your child being injured or killed with a vaccine or, you know, your child being swept up 
in um, this sex trafficking ring. It it really is all so similar. Yeah, and I think the scariest part to me is that I'm starting to see it be completely disassociated from politics or completely disassociated from Donald Trump entirely, right? Especially with QAnon stuff and Pizzagate stuff. So on, on TikTok, Pizzagate is huge. And it sort of took off with this Wayfair conspiracy that that children are being shipped in large containers in overpriced products on Wayfair to people, missing children uh, that you can look up on the internet. It's completely nonsensical. To a 15-year-old, it's interesting in the way an internet conspiracy theory would be. And then they've tied that back to Pizzagate. Now, they don't understand that Pizzagate is has anything to do with John Podesta or the 2016 election or Russian interference or uh, any of this stuff. They just understand that it is weird that a cabinet with a price glitch costs $12,000 and it has the name of a human being because they don't, they haven't bought furniture yet. They're 15 years old. They don't know that if you go to Ikea, the thing is called Billy or whatever. So that is the issue here. These are groups that are now recruiting together in tandem, anti-vaxxers, QAnon people, any sort of anti-science Illuminati based, you know, like new world order kind of thing. They're recruiting in spaces that have a reason to believe this stuff, like African African American communities, or uh, are too naive to really understand what's going on, like children or or you know teenagers who are and they're preying on their fear that they might be abducted. So this is really scary. Like this can last well beyond this election, even though it is, I would say, you know, especially with QAnon, primarily focused on getting Donald Trump reelected. So if there's one thing that you could ask for that would, you know, make your lives a little easier, stop you from having to write the same story over and over again, head off from the nightmare that you're just describing from happening, what would it be? Like, is more moderation from platforms? Like, is there something in particular that jumps out at you as something that needs to be done? Oh, man. I have an answer for this. Um, And it will be what I've been saying for years. But Facebook does this thing where they moderate content. But for the last few years, they've pivoted their business to really focus on groups, the function that, you know, lets people have communities of plant lovers or people in your same daycare or, you know, the QAnon cult. So they'll often take things down from there. There are bad acting groups that are consistently the spreaders of the worst disinformation and misinformation from health to conspiracies. And I think it would take about 30 minutes to take a list of the worst groups. There are maybe a couple hundred and delete them. Like say this group trades in, bad content that we think is harmful for the world and that researchers and doctors and uh, everyone has said nothing good can come of it. And so we're just going to make a decision that they can't be here anymore. We don't want them in our house. And they could stop that. They won't do that. And I can't figure out why. I've asked so many people. I Again, when Facebook said that they were going to do something about health misinformation in regards to vaccines in 2019, I said, oh, well, then certainly you're going to get rid of the group Stop Mandatory Vaccination that's just a group dedicated to anti-vaccination misinformation. But they won't or they didn't. And so that doesn't make much sense to me. So I, I guess if there's one thing that I would wish for, it would be one person at Facebook to have the power and the spine to say, we know when content is breaking our rules and we know the the people behind that content and we're not going to allow them to be on our platform anymore. That's a really good suggestion. And I completely agree. Um, my suggestion would be show us what your algorithm is actually doing. Not necessarily me. I'm an idiot. Show <laughs> like a researcher who knows how to deal with the backbone of an algorithm that's gone haywire and show that the, you know, why the pipes are poisoned. You know, a lot of people say, uh, make this analogy to like a supermarket where, you know, if say you have 10,000 apples at a supermarket over the course of a week and only one of them is poisoned. Only one of them goes home and gives somebody food poisoning. 
that's bad. That would be really bad. Imagine if it was Coke or like, you know, Diet Coke or something. And one in every 10,000 Diet Cokes made you virulently ill, <laughs> like, like violently ill. Imagine if that was the case. People would be like, we got to get this Coke off the shelves. We got to figure out what's, what, which pipe in the Coke factory <laughs> is making the bad Cokes. That is not the case with Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. They, they don't, they will not let you in the factory. They will not show you how it's going bad in these places. Uh, we just want to see what's happening. Um, we know for a fact that there is a pipeline to extremism through all of these algorithms, specifically Facebook groups, specifically YouTube. If we could outline the path that gets people from a bodybuilding forum to being a boogaloo boy in less than a week, we can shine a light on it. We can show the creators at the top of it, like, hey, we're sorry, we kept funneling all of your users to uh, extremism content in less than four videos. Like, I'm sorry about that. That's probably really bad for your ad money. There's a massive financial incentive for these people to do this too, but they refuse to do it. So just show us. We've been saying this for years and uh, I we're really tired of it. We're just tired of, like, like Brandy said, we're tired of covering the same story. We're, we're tired of knowing the outcome weeks before things happen. You know, that, that has absolutely happened with, with Facebook and Twitter. And we've called them and we're like, hey, uh, just letting you know, you know, these groups are literally calling for the assassination of specific people or saying they're going to go to these rallies and do these things. Uh, when are you going to do something about it? Then they don't. And then it happens. And they sheepishly come back to us and enforce some sort of rule that they said that they were enforcing all along. There is ways to fix this. They're not doing any of them. It's it's negligence at this point for us to not bring it up with them because we 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 see the destruction. Brandy has been covering the health side of it, you know, before the pandemic, and then saw it explode to become a large part of people's identities to be anti-mask and things like that because of these groups. They could have saved a lot of lives. We're the only country in the world at this scale and this size with this sort of health misinformation problem, and there's a reason for it. People are attacking those pipes in very direct ways that are profiting a very small amount of people. And we've known about this for years. And uh, I really wish they would take it as seriously as we are. So we've we've had a little bit of a running, I, I don't know if it's a joke, but I'll, I'll call it a running joke on the show that we always end on a pessimistic note. Um, so I guess we're, <laughs> we're going to do the same thing here. Um, <laughs> Thanks to you both for coming on in an incredibly hectic time. This is a great conversation. Uh, thank you so much, guys. We really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's mini-series on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening. <laughs>